This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. The life of the resurrection, you see, this transformation which occurs in us uh, is something which might affect many different levels, many different aspects of our life. It affects the way we think. Um, it affects the kind of priorities that we have in life. Uh, I mean, what am I living for? Uh, what is the purpose of my life? Uh, if I reflect on my life in the light of the resurrection of Christ, um, of course, I'm thinking of my life in a different way because I'm thinking of a different kind of life. You know, that, uh, that no longer am I bound uh, by the life of this world, which will come to an end. Uh, I have been put to death um, to the life of this world, and I am transformed into the life, um, you know, which will come in the next world. It's a different thing. Um, and this is what we need to, uh, we need to emphasize. Uh, you know, we need to understand as part of the message of salvation. Uh, it's not just a removal of what is wrong, but it is a giving of something better, a giving of something which is good and right. Then, uh, of course, we confess that the, the one who rose from the dead, Christ who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. Uh, not many people notice this, uh, but the ascension uh, is the hinge, if you like, which links the Gospels on the one hand with the Acts of the Apostles on the other. It is the transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to his heavenly ministry, uh, going from, one, uh, from this world uh, to the next world. Uh, and the ascension is the great forgotten uh, event, if you like, uh, or under, undervalued event um, uh, in the life of Christ. And it is, but it is of cru crucial importance uh, for our salvation. Uh, why? Uh, well, first of all, because the sacrifice which Jesus made on the cross, in the ascension, he takes it up to heaven and presents it to the Father. You see, this is the moment when the Father uh, ratifies, if you like, sets the seal on uh, the, uh, the sacrifice which Christ has made, which the Son has made, because he returns to the glory uh, from which, uh, uh, which he had in the beginning with the Father. Uh, but now uh, it is a glory in which the wounds um, uh, of, of his uh, suffering uh, are glorified. Um, you know, they're part of it, that they don't disappear. Um, in, in, you know, it's not as if they're healed and vanish, the, no scars left or anything like that. Um, he, he takes his sacrifice with him into heaven where he pleads at the right hand of the Father for our salvation. So there is an ongoing work of Christ, the work of mediation uh, at the right hand of the Father, uh, which is again an essential part of our salvation. And we need to understand this uh, because uh, every once in a while something might happen um, that brings it uh, again to the fore. I remember many years ago um, when I was in my church, my funny little church, going to visit uh, a, a family and we got talking about 
death and salvation, I don't know, all kinds of things. And, and this man uh, was asking me, he said, he said, I've always wondered, he said, how is it possible that we can be saved by the death of Christ? And I said, what do you mean? And I said, he said, well, he said, people say that, you know, it is, the, it is the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Christ and so on, which saves me from my sin. He said, but Jesus was dying on the cross and his blood sort of went out from his body, you know, down on the cross and so on. But that's it. I mean, it's gone now, you know. What's that got to do with me? How can I benefit from this now. I mean, it's a past historical event. And nobody had ever asked this question. I mean, I never had it sort of put to me quite as bluntly as that before. And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, well, yes. I said, uh, it was, of course, a historical event that Jesus died on the cross. And you cannot go back to that. I mean, we can't, you know, we don't stand at the foot of the cross uh, with little bowls sort of waiting for the blood of Christ to come into our, uh, into our laps and sort of pour it over us or something. This is not what happens. It's not a physical thing. I said, but Jesus, not, you know, the, his sacrifice, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and when he ascended into heaven, he took that sacrifice and the fruit of that sacrifice with him into heaven. And so this is, what, this is how it benefits you and me now, uh, because uh, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is pleading for you and me right now on the basis of that sacrifice. That sacrifice has not disappeared. Uh, it, has, uh, it has ascended uh, into heaven and is therefore more powerful, if you like, more universal than it would have been initially uh, because uh, it, it has become part of uh, the inner life of God. Uh, you know, that, that he has taken it back uh, into the, uh, the realm of the Father, into that relationship, and I benefit from this. So that is a very, um, uh, a very important aspect of it, uh, you know, that the ascension is, a, is of great importance to us. The ascension is also a reminder that our salvation is in heaven and not on earth. Uh, now, uh, again, uh, we have to be careful here because it's possible to um, uh, go to an extreme, uh, you know, one extreme or the other. Um, Christians are often criticized uh, for, say, on the ground that they supposedly say uh, that uh, the gospel is, to quote the famous phrase, uh, pie in the sky when you die, uh, but meanwhile you're, you have to suffer on earth. Um, you know, on earth you carry your cross, and when you get to heaven, uh, it, it'll be fine. It's a kind of um, uh, heavenly thing, but has no earthly uh, application, no earthly relevance. This, of course, is not what the church teaches. It is not what the Bible says. Um, uh, there's not a separation uh, in, in this way. But the opposite, you see, the kind of people who criticize the church for saying things like this, and uh, I would name uh, among them, among, among the chief of them, people like Karl Marx, 
you know, religion is the opium of the people. You're kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, anesthetizing them to the pain and suffering that they, ha they have to go through in this world. Uh, but by promising them, uh, you know, peace and joy in the next life, uh, but, but this becomes an excuse for not doing anything about problems here. Um, you know, that, that sort of uh, criticism. Um, that the, the, the result, of course, of that um, is that there are people around, and we, we, we see them today, um, who say we don't need to worry about salvation after death. Uh, we're not concerned about heaven and things like this. Uh, we need to improve life on earth. Um, uh, you know, if there is no sort of um, heavenly uh, utopia or whatever, we need to make uh, life on earth uh, better uh, and give up ideas of heaven and, um, uh, you know, change, change the world uh, to make it a better place. Well, uh, of course, uh, this is a very subtle and very attractive idea because uh, Naturally, we want the world to be a better place if, if we can do that. I mean, we're not you know, trying to um, deny this aspect of it. Uh, but we have to remember that whatever good we do in this world, and however successful we are, this is not salvation. Um, that uh, you know, giving people a good job a nice house to live in, uh, enough money to keep them until in, in old age and so on. These things are good in themselves. I mean, I'm not for one minute suggesting we shouldn't do this if we can, but they are not salvation. Why not? Because you still die in the end. And uh, even if you've had a good life, uh, you know, you um, it comes to an end. We mustn't fall into the trap of, of either or. Either, either you preach heaven or you try to change the world. I mean, it's not an either or thing. Uh, you know, we obviously want uh, to be good stewards of the, of the uh, resources that God has given to us in, uh, in this world and on earth, yes. Um, but we must never shortchange people uh, when talking about uh, salvation uh, into um, not saying anything about heaven. I mean, uh, yes, we have to feed the hungry. Yes, we have to heal the sick uh, and so on. Jesus did this. But Jesus never lost sight of the bigger picture. Uh, you know, uh, because uh, those who were healed in this life, Lazarus, who, who was raised from the dead, was not raised from the dead into eternity. He was raised from the dead uh, into this life, and he died again, you see, at some later stage. Was this a good thing? Well, of course. I mean, you know, we're not going to say that the, the raising of Lazarus was a bad thing. Um, but it wasn't definitive. Uh, and if we confine ourselves, as I say, to, you know, curing problems in this life um, and never say anything about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, about going into the next life, about, about life in heaven, we are, in effect, uh, denying these people the gospel. Um, we are allowing them to uh, settle for a caricature, for a substitute, which 
uh, is not eternally valid. Uh, and therefore, uh, we are failing in our calling. We are failing in our duty. And the doctrine of the ascension, the ascension of Christ, is a reminder of this. You see, uh, that uh, whatever we do in this life, uh, if it is not transformed and taken up to heaven, uh, then it is not salvation. You see what I mean? It just, it just doesn't... Uh, do the job uh, that uh, salvation is meant to do. And then finally, uh, the creed says, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, this is what is known as the heavenly session of Christ. Uh, what does it mean? It means, and this is explained in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, where uh, the apostle talks about the, the, the resurrection. Uh, he also talks about the ascension and the heavenly session. Um, that Christ has taken his sacrifice up into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. The right hand, the right hand is the hand of power. Uh, it is the hand of, of, of justice um, uh, and so on. It is a sy symbolic of this. Um, and indeed, the, the use of the word right, uh, you see, which uh, implies uh, justice, uh, good, and so on. Um, I, I, I don't want to be uh, anti-left-handed. Those of you who may, if there's anyone here who's left-handed, uh, I, I don't want you to feel that you know that uh, there's something wrong with you or anything like that. Um, but, but it is true that historically, um, you know, the, of the two hands, the right hand has been used as the hand of power and, and, and justice and right, and the left hand has been seen as something, uh, uh, you know, wrong. Um, I mean, in Latin, the word for left, left hand, is sinister. Uh, you know, and sinister, of course, suggests evil, something like this. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 whereas the, in all languages, the word for right uh, is connected with justice and, and law and order and so on. It's often, well, as in English, it's the same word. Um, uh, you know, to do what is right um, uh, with, with the right hand uh, and so on. So the, his sitting at the right hand of God is a sim symbolic thing, um, uh, you know, meaning that he has taken up his kingdom, he has taken up his power uh, and, uh, and, and is reigning in the church today. Uh, we, we must not forget um, that Pentecost is in the second chapter of Acts not the first. The first chapter of Acts tells the story of the ascension and the heavenly session. And it is as a fruit of this, it is the Christ who is reigning in glory, Christ the King, who sends his Holy Spirit. Uh, that the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the messenger, the ambassador of the King, uh, of the one who has taken up his power and who is reigning in heaven and earth. Uh, and so this we need always to remember. You see, this is the, the accomplishment, the fullness, the fulfillment of, um, uh, of his calling, of his ministry. This is what God has, uh, has ordained and the work of Christ has come to its completion uh, in this way. Now, of course, um, we are still pilgrims uh, on earth. Uh, we are uh, still uh, uh, 
engaged in spiritual warfare. We belong to what uh, the theologians call the church militant uh, here in earth, not the church triumphant in heaven. This is true, but our victory is assured. Our victory is assured because the king is on his throne. Uh, the king is, uh, has his power uh, and he will uh, uh, work out his purposes in our life. We don't have to worry about that. And so remembering this uh, is remembering that we, don't, we are not operating in a world uh, of chaos and disorder. Uh, we are not sort of lost in the jungle. I often think about um, this because you know how every once in a while um, you hear a, a story of how a Japanese soldier, um, you know, sort of comes down from the hills in the Philippines or somewhere like this, um, uh, you know, having been having discovered for the first time that the war is over. Uh, but but it, because because he was lost in the jungle uh, and out of touch with the you know with what was going on, he was still waging war against the enemy, if only by hiding from him. Um, you know, for 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 decades, uh, you, you know, you hear these stories from time to time. And uh, but we as Christians are not like this. You see, uh, we are not out of touch uh, with our commander in chief. Uh, we are not. Um, uh, you know, uh, hiding in the jungle uh, of this world, wondering, you know, when on earth we may hear about, uh, about victory, uh, if ever, uh, and then only to discover, you know, that the whole thing has been a delusion, that we've wasted our time. Um, because this is the sad thing. I mean, uh, you know, these soldiers who, who, uh, who are doing this and throwing all their energy into, um, uh, you know, fighting for the emperor and fighting for the, the glory of Japan and so on, only to discover that n nobody else is. Uh, you know, that the whole, the, the whole thing is false, you see, from beginning. Uh, I mean, uh, this is not our situation, uh, that we are, uh, we are soldiers of the king who is in control and we are in contact with him in and through his Holy Spirit who is alive and working in our hearts. So this is the, uh, the, the, the broader context, if you like, uh, of salvation that we need to bear in mind. Now, wrapping all this up, putting this up, what is the connection uh, between the life, death, resurrection, ascension, heavenly session of Christ, the redemption that we, that we have received in Christ, and the promises that God had originally made. Because, of course, Christ comes to fulfill the promises. He comes to, um, uh, to, to make real uh, in our experience and in our lives what God has said he would do. Um, but in what way does he do this? And the question, of course, comes up particularly in relation to the law and, more generally, to the Old Testament. Because there's always a tension um, in Christian theology, and this goes through, you know, as, right from the beginning. Has the law of Moses, the, the Old Testament, been abolished, uh, you know, so that this no longer matters, it's just gone? Or has it been fulfilled or established? Has it been justified, in a sense? You see, that they, uh, confirmed, uh, perhaps the best word to use.
and uh, th this, is, this is one of those discussions, you see, that goes on. I mean, you could say Christ came to fulfill the law, yes. But does this mean that it's all put to an end, it all comes to an end, or does this mean that we now understand the law uh, and its true meaning, uh, you know, for the first time? Now, these two ideas, these two things, have to be held together. Uh, it's no good trying to separate them out and saying, well, um, you know, the law has been abolished, so we can forget all about it. If that were the case, uh, we wouldn't have the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament would have been forgotten uh, and left behind, um, if I can borrow that phrase, um, uh, you know, because it would have no relevance to us today. And God did not give the Old Testament to Israel and maintain it in the life of the church just so that we could ignore it. I mean, somehow or other, uh, we have got to read it today still uh, as the Word of God, knowing that the promises which were made in it uh, to Israel have been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, so uh, we can't just abolish the law. On the other hand, uh, the promises have been fulfilled and therefore confirmed, but not in such a way that uh, as Christians we simply we, uh, are more legalistic than the Jews were. Uh, you may think this is a little bit strange, but uh, there's always been a tendency in the Christian church, and it goes right back uh, to Tertullian in the second and third centuries, uh, when Jesus said, uh, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, what Tertullian understood by that uh, was that um, you and I have to be even more legalistic and more strict uh, than the Jews were, because if you uh, if you look at the, the Pharisees, you see the scribes and the Pharisees, what was the problem? Well, the problem was they had the law given to them, like honor thy father and thy mother, for instance. But keeping that law as it was given was too burdensome, too, too onerous. They couldn't do it. So what do they do? They can't abolish the law, they can't get rid of it. So they reinterpret it in a way which allows them to say that they are keeping it uh, even when they aren't. And of course, in this case of honor thy father and thy mother, we know that uh, they had devised a system whereby you could pay a tax to the temple in Jerusalem. This tax was called the Korban. And uh, that would dispense you, that would free you up from having to look after your parents, um, you know, when they got old. Uh, because you'd say, well, I've, I've provided for them by giving money to the, um, uh, you know, to the temple. I suppose the modern equivalent uh, would be to say, um, well, I don't really have to care about my, uh, my elderly parents because I've been paying for them uh, for their social security, uh, you know, and the government can look after them. I don't have to bother. I mean, that would be the modern equivalent, I suppose, um, uh, of, of this kind of thing. However, um, uh, when we, we, we look at this, and, we, and Jesus, of course, looks at this and says, what you have done is you have 
modified the law, you have, you have uh, massaged the law so that it's something you can keep. And therefore, its real demands, its inner demands, uh, you have ignored, you see. So that, uh, in effect, you have, you have perverted the law, you haven't kept the law. Now, that's what the Pharisees were doing. But what's the answer to this? You see, I mean, it's clearly wrong, and, and, and Jesus said it was wrong, but how, how do you deal with it? What do you do? Well, someone like Tertullian and, and that school of thought within the Christian world uh, would say, well, um, you, you just got to take it literally, you know, honor your father and mother, you have them in your house, and you look after them until they die, uh, regardless you know, whether it's convenient or inconvenient, that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, you know, that's, you're under an obligation to do this. Uh, and, and you cannot, um, you know, water down the law, uh, uh, you know, to let you off the hook from some of these more difficult things. Um, so they are more rigoristic, more, more rigorous, more uh, stricter uh, than even the law uh, requires. Now, this, of course, creates a situation which is impossible because, I mean, that particular example may be all right, but um, there, you know, there are many other things that, um, as the Apostle Paul pointed out, you know, keeping the law is just humanly impossible. There are too many rules. Um, it, it's too complex. And, when, and, what, when, and, and what do you do? You see, how do you do this? And... Um, you're always uh, open to criticism, um, particularly, of course, uh, if you are in ministry, if you're a pastor of some kind, you, you know, you're in public view, and it doesn't take long before somebody notices uh, that uh, you're not actually keeping the law, uh, as it were, in the, w in, in the way that you should, um, you know. And um, uh, I remember uh, when I went for a job, uh, having to sign, uh, I was asked to sign various statements, um, uh, you know, of, of personal conduct and behavior. Uh, and one of them uh, was to say that I would undertake not to do anything on a Sunday that would compromise my Christian witness. And I said, well, I can't sign that. And they said, why not? I said, well, there are two reasons. I said, first of all, I would hope that I wouldn't do anything on any day of the week that would compromise my Christian witness. I mean, what do you expect me to do? You know, sit up and, at night and say, it's one minute past midnight on Monday morning. Hey, let's go out and sin because we don't have to worry about the Sabbath anymore. Um, you know, uh, that's sort of pushing things a little bit too far. But the other thing, of course, and more serious, everybody laughed when I said that, but the, but the more serious thing is until you, 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 you draw up a list of what uh, uh, breaking the Sabbath would consist of, you know, I mean, how would you know, uh, how would you define this? I said it's impossible to sign this because it's a blank check for persecution. Uh, you know, I mean, if I went to Walmart on Sunday, you could be pretty sure that one of the guardians of the faith, uh, you know, would be sitting outside in the car and, and registering this, you know, and then reporting you for doing this kind of thing. 
And it's very sort of reminiscent of, the, of Jewish people, uh, you know, the very strict ones, uh, who hire Gentiles to light their fire on the Sabbath because they can't touch it themselves, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and, and when you see this uh, in Christian circles, now it will come out in different ways, you know. I mean, that's just one example, but there are other um, uh, there, there are other things um, that, uh, you know, sometimes c come up. And it's very easy to feel this way. Uh, you see, I feel, of course, that I ought to go to church on Sunday, and I do try, uh, you know, wherever I am to, to, uh, to, to worship on a Sunday. Uh, but sometimes it's just not possible because I, I'm traveling or, you know, something's happening and I just, it just doesn't work um, uh, for me on a Sunday. And I admit I feel guilty uh, about this because I say to myself, I ought to be in church, you know, but whereas in fact I'm crossing the Pacific in an airplane or something like that. And it's not a sin that I should be doing this, but, uh, but you know, I have such a sense of discipline in my own life that if the discipline gets interrupted for some reason, I feel bad about it. Now, I think it's good that I should feel bad about it because it means that I take it seriously, and when the opportunity arises, um, you know, I will, I will do what I, I know I'm supposed to be doing. Fine. So I do have a conscience about this kind of thing, and I think that's quite good. But on the other hand, if I went around being burdened by this, uh, you know, and, and sense that, uh, you know, I'd fallen away from God because I, I really couldn't do, you know, this particular thing. I would be trapped in a prison of my own making uh, because I have, would have turned uh, my service to Christ in the gospel into a kind of law, into a new law, and made it stricter, you see, than... Um, than, it, than it is meant to be, because Jesus never said this. I mean, you know, man was, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so um, if, you, if you make it that important, uh, that it starts to weigh you down, um, it, you know, and make you feel guilty, uh, then something's wrong. Uh, you know, if there's a real, I mean, obviously, um, it would be quite different if I, uh, you know, on Sunday morning, um, uh, sort of sat outside the church, uh, you know, playing games or something when I could go inside. I mean, that's another matter. We have to get a balance here. We mustn't turn the Christian life into a kind of legalism, into a kind of new law, which people do. You see, we talked about holiness the other day. It's a very strong temptation, um, you know, to, to codify this, to sort of say, well, you know, holiness means doing this, 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 and this, and not doing that, 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 and that. And uh, uh, we legalize our environment uh, before we know what has happened, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and do this. Having said that, uh, of course, uh, we don't want to fall into this trap. Uh, the law is given to us as a reminder uh, of, of what we should do, uh, you see, and what we should do already. Now, if you have uh, the love of God in your heart, the law ought not to be necessary. If, if your heart and mind is in the right place, 
you, the law, is, as the Bible would say, the law is written on your heart, and, and you do it, you, you, you fulfill it because of this. You see that um, it, it's, in, it's in your spirit, it's in your life, uh, and you don't need a book of rules to tell you what to do because you're going to do that anyway, you know. Um, but, of course, uh, this is only true of some people. It's not true of everybody. And unfortunately, you do need rules, you know. Um, I was reminded of this um, uh, some years ago uh, because if you go to France, if you go to Paris, and you get in the metro in Paris, there's a sign sort of inside, you know, that says something like, um, it, it, it is absolutely forbidden uh, to block the, 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 the functioning of the doors, you see, to, to interfere with the functioning of the doors, to blo block the, the, uh, the whatever. And they threaten you with all kinds of things, uh, you know, if you, if, if you do this. All right. In London, the same message is conveyed by saying something like, um, blocking the doors causes delay and may be dangerous. Which is meant to say the same thing. But a friend of mine pointed out, he said, well, you know, it's not actually telling you you can't do it. Because if you don't mind a little delay and you like to live on the wild side, uh, then why shouldn't you block the doors? You know, you can just cause a bit of delay and, and, uh, and get in a little danger. I mean, what's wrong with that? You know what I mean? And it hadn't really entered my head that, that's, that, that the, the, it could be read like that. Um, uh, but of course it could be, you know, and uh, certainly in this country there would be at least a thousand lawyers, uh, you know, uh, who, who would be determined to prove that that is what it means <laughs> and, and justify all kinds of terrible things. Um, but as a reminder to us, you see that the law can only point to what is good. It cannot, it cannot produce it. And this was the problem with the law. This is why the law was inadequate. This is why the law had to be transcended. This is why Christ came. See, the law was not good enough. I mean, the law in itself, as Paul says, the law is holy, the law is just, the law is right, yes, uh, but uh, it can't change your life. It can only tell you what not to do. And if your heart is right with God, uh, you wouldn't be doing that anyway, uh, you see, to start off with. But Christ confirms the law not and, and, and validates the law not by... Uh, telling us to, to obey it even more strictly than, you know, the Jews were capable of doing, but by sending his spirit into our hearts, giving us a new heart, a new mind, a new way of thinking, uh, so that uh, the law, in effect, uh, becomes superfluous. We don't need it because we think like that already, all right? Uh, and that is part of the joy of being a Christian, that we can... Um, uh, we can absorb the principles, we can live the law uh, in that way. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. 
By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.